Welcome back to part two of the Thursday edition of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson and producers Dave Scott and Stephanie Collins. We are doubling up on race class during the course of the summer. We've been offering this class called Race Class once a month. We're planning on doing it for a year. But Jonathan Feingold, who is our professor from Boston University Law School, said, you know what, Arnie? It's the summer. Let's double up. <laughs> Let's talk more as opposed to less, which I am totally appreciative of. And this is episode seven, Race Matters After Admissions, Why Equality Runs Through Diversity. So let me just remind you a little bit about our race class. Legislation restricting the teaching of race and racism in public schools and government entities have spread across the country. In an effort to respond, Boston University law professor Jonathan Feingold and moi, Arnie Arneson, the radio talk show host who's on uh, the Pacifica Network, are offering race class, a once a month, except during the summer, twice a month course slash conversation where listeners can hear what it's like to approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than fear and anxiety. And I want to quote Professor Feingold, we know race matters. Part of this project is to make sense of what that means. So I want to welcome Jonathan back to the program uh, for episode seven. And we have our first guest. So I'm going to thank you very much for doing that. And uh, let's sort of set up a little bit about what you see this conversation about affirmative action. This is sort of our, our second bite at that apple, what it's going to be focusing on and why you brought in our guest. Uh, thanks, Arnie. As always, I'm glad to be here. I'm particularly glad to be here today because we have such a, you know, such a rock star social scientist with us to help us break down uh, some of the concepts we've been talking about. And so, yeah, so let me take a half step back to situate everyone in the conversation. As Arnie referenced, this summer we decided to do a six-part mini-series on affirmative action, but instead of looking at affirmative action policies themselves, the idea is actually to shift the frame and look at how environments function, how systems work when you don't explicitly account for race and racism. And so we're doing that by looking at the pre, the during, and the post of university admissions, essentially how race matters before admissions, how race matters during admissions, and how race matters after admissions if we're in a non-affirmative action world, or what we might call a colorblind world. We started last week by thinking about how race matters after admissions. And we did that by shifting the frame a little bit. Generally, when you hear advocates talk about the benefits of diversity in the classroom, they're often talking about the speech benefits. You bring more people with different perspectives, different experiences into the room. You know, it amplifies the level of discourse in that environment. That's true, like that's great. There's some people do interesting work there, but we wanted to talk about how diversity and racial diversity is key in part because it serves an equality function. If not ensures at least furthers the goal of ensuring that every member of a community is able to thrive in that community, is able to benefit from all of you know the different benefits that come from whatever membership in that space might be, whether it's a university or whether it's an, uh, an office. That, I think, is plenty to set up where I want to um, move in a second. I will ask Arnie to introduce our guest, if you'd like, Arnie. And then, yeah, Dr. Evelyn Carter, who is a former colleague of mine, a constant teacher of mine, always an inspiration of mine, one of the first people who made me think maybe there's a way that we can actually get this right with respect to racial inclusion in, you know, mainstream institutions. So I'm going to 
be doing mostly question asking today, um, but I will pause so Arnie can uh, formally introduce our guest. So uh, I have the honor of uh, introducing Dr. Evelyn Carter. She's a social psychologist who has conducted cutting edge research on how to detect and discuss racial bias. As a president of Paradigm, the world's leading diversity, equity, and inclusion firm, Dr. Carter leveraged her experience to create and evolve Paradigm's blueprint for effective DEI. So let me just say something, uh, Dr. Carter. And as I was thinking about your appearance, and I was thinking about diversity and affirmative action and what's the point, I've told this to Jonathan before. I gave a speech once at Simmons College, and I was talking about what do I mean by equality? And I said, equality isn't sameness. It's very different. And I used a math expression in order to define what I meant by equality that was not sameness. So this is equality, but also sameness. Four equals four. Three equals three. That's equal, and it's the same. But what I want when I talk about equality is I want 5 minus 1 equals 4. I want 3 plus 1 equals 2 plus 2. I want 7 minus 3 equals... And so I started going... I said, look at this. This is equality, but it is not the same. And every time I come up with a different math expression, I am still providing equality, but I'm changing the conversation. I am changing the words. I'm inviting someone else in. And you have to watch all these people at Simmons going, whoa. And it was so amazing because that simple math was like people were like gobsmacked because for the first time they understood what they were asking for. They were asking these women in the room for equality and not for sameness. So I wanted to sort of lay my math problem out to you and then welcome you to the program because I'm here to learn as much as possible. Well, thank you so much for having me, Arnie. John, it's so great to be with you again. I am here on the West Coast, so it's a little early for me for math, but I was following and I like your analogy, so I'm with you. Great, that's great. And thank you for joining so early. We are so glad to have you. Let me just you know, jump into our first question. We um, often on the show in race class reference social science. I'm not a social scientist, but I've had the luxury and really the privilege of working with some really talented social scientists like you. And so last week we referenced this phenomenon called stereotype threat. Can you just help us understand what this phenomenon is and how it might shape a student's experience on a college campus? Sure. So stereotype threat is defined as the fear of confirming or being seen to confirm negative stereotypes about your group. And if anyone wants a nice primer on this, Claude Steele, who is one of the original kind of discoverers, there's a better word than that, uh, of the concept of stereotype threat, wrote a wonderful book called Whistling Vivaldi. Um, so I highly recommend reading that. But stereotype threat is, it, it can show up in any domain where a stereotype is relevant and where you know that the stereotype exists. So for example, I'm a black woman. I know that there are stereotypes about my group that black women are loud, are angry. And so when I find myself in a situation where I'm getting quite emotional and I know that that stereotype looms large, my behavior starts to change because I might wonder, oh no, is this person going to view me through the lens of the stereotype? And so what's interesting about stereotype threat is that as long as you know 
your identity and that your identity has a stereotype attached to it, you are vulnerable to stereotype threat. So there's some really interesting studies that find, for example, one of my favorites, uh, the literal title of the paper is White Men Can't Jump. What the researchers find is that when you have white men participate in a golf putting task, when you frame it for them as a measure of their natural sports ability, they underperform compared to when you describe it as a more neutral uh, task. The reason, because the stereotype is that white men are not as good as sports as black men are, for example, and so that stereotype looms large. So those are a couple examples of what this can look like. But when it comes to the college campus, think about the stereotypes that might be relevant. If you are a Black, Latinx, or Indigenous student, a stereotype that you are unintelligent might be something that looms large for you. If you're a student who doesn't speak English as your first language, a stereotype that you don't have the chops to speak up in class because you're using the wrong words or whatnot might loom large. And so what this means is that the stereotype the concern that I have that I am going to confirm what everybody already thinks to be true about me is going to keep me from being my authentic self. It's going to keep me from being able to perform at my best because instead of putting all of my brain power toward doing my task, toward doing that presentation, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, uh-oh, was that a stereotype confirmation moment? And it's going to make me reluctant to reach out for help if I need it because that could be an example of confirming a stereotype. And so you can see how on a college campus, being stereotyped as unintelligent, holding people back from performing at their peak, holding people back from asking questions and getting help is not the way to help students succeed. I completely understand stereotype threat. I've lived it. I was the first female nominee for governor in my state. Yes, so there you go. Stereotype. There you go, okay. If we understand stereotype threat, then what is the antidote to stereotype threat. Yeah. The antidote actually is something that we all have to take responsibility for. So one of the things that I always, and when I talk to students, I do, I like to do uh, workshops on stereotype threat, um, particularly for students from underrepresented or stereotype backgrounds, because I remember when I was in college feeling this thing and not knowing what it was called, not realizing that there was a name for it, that the behaviors that I was enacting to try to navigate this feeling were very predictable. But that's not my fault. Stereotype threat is very much the fault of the environment. So arguably, if we want to have the antidote to stereotype threat, we, as we are creating environments, need to make sure we are communicating that stereotypes are not relevant. Right, So simple things like when you are um, instructing a college course, everyone has those professors that say, you know, look to your left, look to your right, only one of you is going to make it out of this course. Well, when you do that, you are communicating to students that the one who's going to make it out of that course of the three of you is probably someone who has it. And if you are thinking about who typically has it, it's people who are positively stereotyped as intelligent or as being a great female governor or as what have you. So when I think about the antidote for stereotype threat, it is all about what we as the creators of these environments, whether that is a classroom or a workplace or a radio station, what messages are we sending out about who belongs, about what success looks like? And if we are not doing enough to every single time communicate that stereotypes are not relevant, then we're not doing enough to mitigate that experience of stereotype threat. Because the final thing that I'll say, 
is that stereotype threat is a totally normal and valid response to being a person who is marginalized in this world. It makes sense to wonder whether people are going to judge you because when you're wrong and they don't, or when you miss the judgment, it can be and sometimes fatal. So we have to do everything we can when we're crafting environments to make sure that they are places where people know they are not going to be stereotyped. This conversation is so helpful, and I want to just make explicit in part what we're talking about. What we're talking about is something that you might hear the term referred to as structural racism or institutional racism. And so those are terms that you know became so much more common in the American vernacular two summers ago when we had that global uprising for racial justice following the murders of Breonna Taylor uh, and George Floyd. But for many of us, we lacked a broader vocabulary to be more concrete and precise about what we mean by this thing called structural racism. Stereotype threat is a body of research that reveals one site of what we think of as structural racism, because the way that environments are constructed, the salience of particular stereotypes, who has to contend with those stereotypes means that two people can go through the exact same environment, have the exact same things happening around them, but one person has a nice conveyor belt that is leading them through, and the other person, you know, is hurtling the entire way and trying to dodge any number of what, like a social scientist might refer to as uh, identity contingent environmental forces that create- It just create... rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but the, you know, just really simplified, it's that environments matter to significant degrees and all too often we aren't thinking about how environments matter and how they actually structure the experience of uh, individuals um, within them. Just building on that, and you've talked a little bit about this already, Evelyn, can you just give us a sense of all the different sort of environmental or components of an environment that can either promote inclusion or undermine it? And so we've talked a little bit about um, demographics or composition. You've talked a little bit about, you know, just the way that a professor might talk to a class. But what are just some other features of an environment that enable someone to trust that they will be valued, that they will be judged on their merits, not as a stereotype? Like, what are some of the other environmental factors? Yeah, there are so many, uh, but I'll pick a few of my favorites. So one, um, and I think that is particularly relevant to this conversation that you're having, is the demographic representation in whatever space you're occupying, right? So put simply, the diversity of a space. Why? Because if I walk into a room as a Black woman, I look around and I don't see anybody else like me, the questions start emerging. Where are the other Black women? Where are the other Black people? Were they here before and something happened? If so, will that same thing that happened to them happen to me? Do you see how all of these questions are things that are going to keep me from walking into that environment fully who I am, feeling like I'm going to be able to, uh, to, to perform at my best and really be my authentic self? This is why when I was looking at college campuses with my mom, we would, after the official tour, walk around campus and literally count how many Black students we saw and then count how many Black students we saw that smiled at us. Because she said, if you can find people who look like you, that's a sign that you're going to be okay, right? So that the diversity of a space, the amount of people who are there that look like you, give you a sign 
that people have chartered that path before and that you're probably going to be okay. Can you walk into a space? I walked into the boardroom of one of a, one of the military industrial complexes and I walked into this room and I was the only girl in the room and it was all obviously men in Brooks Brothers suits. And I've told Jonathan this story before. I walked in as a candidate for governor. I was wearing a white wool suit. And I looked down at my suit and I looked at the table and I looked down at my suit and I said, you know, I almost feel virginal in this room. I confronted them on the fact that I walked into a room where there was nobody like me. Okay. I saw nobody. And I sort of looked at them and said, what does that mean about me? More importantly, what does that mean about you? As you were looking at these spaces, because you're the only black, for example, in this room, are you allowed to sort of acknowledge this is awkward? I am the only one. Is it awkward for me? Or maybe should it be awkward for you? I think you have a lot of chutzpah for calling it out in the way that you did, because that's risky. Think back to the stereotype that, that I'm contending with, right? If I say that, the likelihood is that somebody is going to say, oh, look at she just being an angry Black woman again. There's actually a whole phenomenon that was uh, discovered or kind of uh, published by Cheryl Kaiser um, and many people since then called the complainer effect, which is that people who are members of marginalized or stigmatized group, basically people who are, you know, this group that we're talking about and um, who experience stereotype threat, when they talk about their experiences with discrimination, when they call out bias, they're more likely to be dismissed as oversensitive complainers who are unlikable unhirable, just playing the race, the gender, the gay, the whatever card. Part of my job, quite frankly, is to be that voice in the room that can kind of zoom out and say, hey, let's take a look at these dynamics right now. Let's, let's interrogate what's going on here. But it can be really hard to do so as the, as the person who is in that space. Not impossible, but hard. Okay. And so I'm also going to take another moment now just to make explicit some of the conversation because I think it will be helpful for some listeners. There's another term that became far more common over the past couple of years, which is intersectionality. And we think about intersectionality in lots of different ways, but generally when it's mobilized, it's, you know, additive and sort of different um, aspects of someone's identity, um, their gender, their race. And so we might think of, so black woman, that's an intersectional moment. But white woman is also an intersectional moment. And white man in the boardroom is another intersectional moment. But rarely do we think of that white man or that identity as intersectional, in part because so often it is essentially functioning as the baseline against which we're measuring everything else. But if we are thinking of sort of white maleness, particularly white maleness, and then of a high socioeconomic status, that is a particular sort of, you know, you can think of race, class, gendered, social identity advantage. And that's intersectionality in action right there. But again, generally, we don't see that as intersectionality because that is, you know, the default against which everything is working against. That was my, I guess, my detour, um, my race class detour. I love that. I want to share one other cue that I think is really important. These are what's referred to in the literature as ambient cues to belonging, basically the stuff that exists in the environment around you, right? So there's really interesting research by Dr. Sapnacharian, who's at University of Washington, which she um, found in her research is that female computer science students who viewed a virtual reality classroom of a computer science uh, lab that was filled with components of like a stereotypical male computer nerd, right? So like soda cans, slinkies, Star Trek posters, all of that. 
compared to a classroom or a lab that had more neutral things like nature posters, general interest magazines, that the female computer science students saw the one with the male cues and said, I am less likely to belong here. That made them feel like they belong less in computer science. It made them perform worse on a subsequent task, right? Because their brain was working overtime to kind of contend with those stereotypes and wonder, am I going to be successful here? And so there's been a lot of research and actual practical applications of this. I went to grad school at Indiana University. There was a big lecture hall in one of the buildings that had a mural of the history of Indiana. And if anybody knows anything about the history of Indiana, there was a strong resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan that happened in Indiana in around the 1800s, I believe. Friends, that mural depicted a cross burning in one of the most prominent lecture halls on campus, a place where students took exams, where I had lectures. Let me tell you, there is nothing that makes you wonder whether you belong more than seeing a cross burning as a black person trying to take an exam. And so actually my advisor, Dr. Mary Murphy and others worked with the administration to change that be using this argument of stereotype threat and the ambient cues that would signal stereotype threat to say, hey, we're actually creating an environment that is making it impossible for black students and for students of color to be maximally successful because we are reminding them of not just their identity, but of the, the stereotype and the negative experiences that come along with it at every turn. So are you rewriting history? I've been on too much commercial radio to know that I have to ask that question because in, in effect, here's the problem. There have been lynchings. Yeah. There are the KKK. They did burn crosses. There is an aspect to our past that is so dark and so nefarious and so immoral. And the question is, do we not acknowledge it? Do we not paint it? Do we not include it? Because in a way, knowing the past and seeing the evolution to something different and better is important. Are you saying that in this environment, this was not a good thing, but that knowing that that existed is a good thing. So then the question becomes, what environment, where should it belong? Because yeah. I want to know all the negatives about my past because I don't want to repeat them. Yeah. I mean, I think number one, I definitely know about the plan and cross burnings. I don't need a mural to remind me, right? And the location is not in a lecture hall where students are taking critical, you know, exams for their college, you know, whatever, for their college careers. I definitely agree with you that painting over it and just saying this didn't exist is not the answer either. Right. But what you need to be doing is having those conversations, I think, in more controlled spaces where you can control the message around it, right? So thinking about stereotype threat and wanting to avoid it by having important framing how are you setting up a classroom where you're talking about the Klan and the history of Indiana? How are you taking care of the students in your class who might have been targets of the Klan as they are going through it? A very quick example of this. When I was in the fifth grade, my fifth grade teacher, Ms. Dobson, showed us a movie that was based in the U.S. South. And there was a police officer who was a member of the Klan uh, by night, which, you know, that's a whole other conversation. And I was one of the only, if not the only black student in that class. Ms. Dobson um, was a black teacher, is a black teacher as well. Um, I love her, shout out to Ms. Dobson. And she noticed that I was having a visceral reaction to it because even as a fifth grader living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I was convinced the Klan was gonna come from my family. And so she had me come and sit next to her 
when we were watching the movie. That's a simple example of how you don't have to change the, the conversation or whitewash over the discussion, but just say, hey, I see that for you, this is gonna impact you differently, come, come closer to me. And that has made such a difference. I still think about that to this day. Arnie, you asked the, you know, the provocative question in part just to, in part just to push the conversation to, yes. a little bit. It's good, and, yeah. And because, you know, but also because it's in this moment where you have states across the country that are simultaneously trying to restrict voting rights and trying to restrict students' access to basic information about the history of this country, in part because all that information adds up to the same sum. I guess, yeah, that's it. It adds up <laughs> to the same sum, which is that all of the inequities that we see in this country are predictably the consequence of the past that we come from. And that we're not able to overcome that unless we are able to see that past. And there's something very different between, you know, taking seriously and not whitewashing history and putting a monument in the center of town that is celebrating that history or a mural in the middle of campus that is conveying a particular message that is one that um, is rooted in notions of racial hierarchy. I um, mean, so, you know, it's conversations connected with all the fights over Confederate monuments um, and statues um, where you have this essentially this dissonance where people are saying, well, why do you care so much? But then taking up arms to prevent you from taking down the statue. But again, I detour. I have a minute left. I want you on. <laughs> I want you on every week is what I want. I want you on. This is so fun. <laughs> This is, this is episode seven of Race Class. We've been doing critical race theory through the lens of race class. We'll be doing it for an entire year. Jonathan Feingold is a professor of law at Boston University. Evelyn Carter is a social psychologist who's conducted, you can tell, cutting edge research on how to detect and discuss racial bias. Thank you so much. I feel like my brain is being taken out and being reformed and being put back in, raising new questions, giving me new eyes. And in the end, that's what this is about. It's about awareness. And you're providing me with that kind of awareness. So I have to thank you so much, Dr. Carter, as well as Professor Feingold. This is the Thursday edition of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson and producers Dave Scott and Stephanie Collins. We will schmooze tomorrow, everyone. Ciao. Just